Thank you, Jessica, and thank you, worship team. Um, Those lyrics tie right into our text this morning in Matthew 15. Give us clean hands. Are your hands clean this morning? We're actually going to talk about what that means. Jesus talks about clean hands, or at least the Pharisees do. Do we have clean hearts this morning? What does that look like? We have... We sang our songs of praise. We've put our tithes in the offering plate. But have we worshipped God? Sounds like a a crazy question to ask. But we're going to look at that this morning as well. Before I do, I want to thank Sam for filling the pulpit last week and bringing wisdom to our attention out of James 1 and Proverbs 1 and our need and how to apply it and to walk in it. Appreciate that, Sam. And thanks... To the sound booth, those guys up there, and to Helmut Lerzer, who uh, makes these sermons available so that you can hear them, even if you happen to miss a Sunday, Lord forbid. So we missed a Sunday, but we're still able to be with you in spirit and then hear the teaching that went forth. So thank you, Helmut and sound crew, for making that available to us. We are in Matthew chapter 15, and I have a lot to cover, so I'm just going to dive right in, but... God is going to challenge our hearts this morning in this text, I have no doubt. Verse 1. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So here we have Matthew opens this chapter. We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to Jesus. They are seeking him out. And we know by now 
They're not seeking him out because they're anxious to hear what he has to say because they want to learn it so that they can grow. The reason they are seeking Jesus out, the reason they are making that trip all the way from Jerusalem to where Jesus is at this time is because they want to catch him. They want to trap him. They want to find whatever dirt they can on him to take him down. So they're always critiquing him. And this is a pat. These several chapters really are are framed by the accusations that the Pharisees make. As a matter of fact, we learn about God's word because of these false accusations. Jesus is defending himself or defending God and showing them the, the, the ways of their errors in here. So they are accusing him. This accusation is against his disciples. And they basically come to this rabbi Jesus and they say, your disciples are breaking God's law. They're disregarding it. They're disrespecting it. And here's how they're disrespecting it. God has established leaders to lead his people. It's something that he establishes in his word. And the leaders that are leading his people have come up with Leadership in the form of how to wash your hands, how to obey the word of God. And these traditions we are aware of today. And by you refusing to obey the elders or the leaders that God has put over you, in essence, you are refusing to obey God. They are in rebellion. That's the charge. That's the accusation against him. They're not washing their hands. Everybody knows that's what you have to do. In order to worship God or to be right with God. So what can we learn about Jesus's response? First of all, what can we learn about their conclusion and the way that they were operating in that day and their time? They have dangerously and perilously blurred the lines between God's authority, God's word and man's authority and man's word. God does establish leaders and God does establish teachers to help us understand his word and to apply his word. And they are most of the time very useful, very needful as they are stewards of the divine word of God. But never is man's word or man's opinion or man's conclusion to equal or be on the same par as God's authoritative divine word. And they had in that age taken the the ideas of man through the ages. It took a lot of time for them to come to these conclusions, but through the ages, they took the ideas of man. They turned them in, embodied them into actual rules and attached them to God's word and made them equal in authority and also equal in the sense that to obey the tradition of man is to disobey. Uh, to disobey the tradition of man is to disobey God's word and therefore make you culpable of the same kind of discipline actions. So the people in that in that atmosphere and under this kind of teaching feared the elders and the Pharisees and feared to disobey them because they were equal to God's word and they would face serious repercussions. And that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees had the nerve and felt like they probably had the whole nation behind them in this accusation against Jesus. So they blurred the lines between the authority of man 
and God and these traditions. How did this come about? How is something like this possible? Well, it took a lot of time. But basically, it's the idea of taking something that is true in God's word and then building on it and building on it and building on it and potentially turning it into something eventually that it was never meant to be. So in the Old Testament, in Exodus, we do find teachings about washing of hands. Uh, specifically, when the priests were to go into the temple and offer their sacrifices and minister to God on behalf of the people, they were to pass by the bronze laver and there they were to symbolically, ceremonially wash their hands and their feet before they could minister to God. Then there's a few other teachings about uh, that's more religious oriented or ceremonial oriented. Then there were a few passages that whereby God told the people of Israel, you know, if you have like some kind of infection going on in your body, wash your hands. So that was more of a hygienic thing. But over the years, the leaders looked at this symbolism and they built upon it. And somebody came up with the idea of, well, let's not just wash, let, let not just the priests wash their hands, but all of us wash their hands. And then it turned into, well, let not just all of us, we have to wash our hands. See, it's getting pulled into God's word in this commandment. We're going to pull it in here. Now, as a, as a way to obey this commandment, we have to wash our hands before we eat. But not just that, you have to take the picture and you have to pour it over your hands a certain amount of times. Not just that, it, it builds to where as you're pouring the water over your hands and as you're washing them, you have to say certain words. So they're, they're pulling, I get, you know, seemingly harmless and great ideas. They're pulling them in. But the harm comes, not that it's wrong to, to wash your hands. The harm comes in the fact that they elevated this man-made idea and made it equal, equally binding to man as if God himself spoke it. And Jesus said is trying to show them. He does show them, in fact. This is a grievous sin. A dangerous, perilous thing to do. And the traditions of man, the ideas of man of, in how to celebrate God, if they're not found specifically in God's word, are not to be elevated to that place. But in that mindset, to disobey the traditions of man was to disobey God. Incidentally, in Luke chapter 11, verse 38, um, this isn't the first time they've been aghast at people not washing their hands. You know, Jesus, he was quite the socialite and he would mingle with even sinners. And he was eating a meal, was invited to eat a meal at someone's house. And before he ate his meal, he did not wash his hands. And the leaders there were aghast. He would eat food because in their mind, he just defiled himself. Because in their mind, even though they were wrong, they thought that washing your hands before a meal was a mandatory act of obedience and worship to God. You see how dangerous and twisted things can be. Now, today we might be aghast of somebody that didn't wash their hands under certain circumstances. I might be aghast if you walk out of the restroom and go to greet me one Sunday morning and I notice that you didn't wash your hands coming out you know, the restroom. Um, 
even our culture has uh, hygienic laws and regulations. I know about these because I read signs in the men's bathroom at restaurants. And it says, employees must wash their hands after using the restroom. And they even have pictures to show you how to do it. And I'm very grateful, very grateful for these kind of rules to know that when I get my food, it's what I think is in that bowl. I think it's it's a good and I would be aghast if I went to a restaurant and saw the famous chef come out of the restroom and maybe merely wipe his hands on his uh, apron instead of bleach them or cleanse them thoroughly. So there are pros and cons coming at it from different angles. Jesus is going to challenge this idea of traditions. But the interesting thing is he doesn't challenge that particular accusation about washing hands. He's going to show them where they are in error and how dangerous it is and what they've done. But he uses another example of how they have misused and confused. Rather than taking it back to the washing of the hands, he takes it back to one of the commandments. And the commandments in uh, Exodus chapter 20. The commandment he's going to use as an example to show them the error of his ways is honor your mother and father. That is straight out of God's word. That's pure, carries the divine authority with it. It's written, it's been copied and preserved. Honor your mother and your father. Can't argue with that. But what they had done over the years with their creative minds is that they took this law. And because they approach God's word with an evil heart, out of the other side comes an interpretation and application that is quite convenient to them, but quite sinful against God. Over the years, as they wrestle and struggle with how do I apply this commandment, what would it look like? So God's word says in some way, in, in some form or fashion, your parents are to receive honor. God has bestowed that to them. And as children, we are to recognize to some degree and to some aspect that. Give them respect, honor, and care. That's the commandment. Through the years as they wrestled with how to apply this, by the time Jesus comes around, they have some other laws that are now in place. These are not taken from God's word. But here's the law. Here's what he's talking about. They're actually dishonoring their parents. They are in blatant disobedience. Because rather than helping their parents with their resources, they found a way to use God's word to come up with some other laws to make it look like they're obeying God and worshiping God. But really, they're just getting what their own hearts do. So what they do is they take their resources and they dedicate them to God. And they use the word Corbin. If something's it's, it's, it's Corbin, in other words, I can't I can't give this resource. I can't use this resource for you, mom and dad, as much as I would like to. Because I've dedicated to God, it's, it's Corbin. Now, what that how that all plays out is when you dedicate something to God. You write it to him basically in your will. So when I die, 
these resources, whatever it is, go to God, go to his temple, go to the priest, whatever. But in the meantime, I can use them any way I want. In other words, while I'm alive, I get to do what I want with my resources. I don't have to give them to my I don't have to use them to obey God's word because I'm giving them to God. I mean, after all. So that's the idea. So Jesus shows them how their reason, their their the evil in their hearts have led them to pervert God's word in such a way that they are not at all obeying command. This is what God's word says. And this is what your tradition says. They're not the same thing. You are disobeying the word of God with the traditions of man. And you're teaching this. And not only are you teaching it, but you are are binding it upon. That's why he says, let the blind lead the blind. It's It's an act of imprisonment. When we bring... And Jesus, we're going to talk a little bit more about the heart shortly. But when we bring a heart that is self-serving, even to God's pure word, we have the potential to pervert it. Even though it's blameless and flawless. When we bring this sin nature into it, and then our flawed thinking and our desires to it, What comes out on the other end is not always what God desired to begin with. And this is a perfect example of of how a group of people can actually use God's word against God. So that they can just continue to look like they're worshiping God. But in essence, they've never changed their heart. They are worshiping themselves and and delighting in the things that they want to delight in. It's always interested me. Um, You have seen perhaps even in our day and age where somebody. For a lack of better terms or those that are opposed to Christianity, they do what? They'll take God's word and scriptures to back up their case. Why this is permissible or why this isn't permissible. They use God's own word. Of course, they pull it out and, and and. And cut it into pieces and fragment it so that you're not really getting what God says. But you take that little piece out and they'll use it. It's when you take that wicked heart in there and it perverts it. Tradition can be a good thing, but it's never equal to God's word. So, so the, the idea or the remedy to this is just keep tradition in its place. That's all. Just keep it in its place. Look at it for what it is, because there are good traditions and beautiful traditions. We don't want to make the mistake and say all traditions are evil and throw them all out. We have wonderful symbolic traditions for the church that have been in existence for thousands of years now. They're beautiful. They're wonderful when they're done with the right heart. They're not ways to escape the lordship of Christ. They're ways to bring ourselves under it. And deepen our grip on the Lordship of Christ. Applying God's word isn't always easy. And it does take community to get it right. But keep the authority of God's word in its proper place. It alone is inspired. It alone brings new life. It alone has the power to change 
a heart. You know, it reminds me in the New Testament that the Bible predicts a time when man will no longer put up with sound doctrine. The stuff is just right out of God's word that you really can't argue with reasonably or rationally. Just sound, pure, rock solid doctrine, orthodox truth. The time will come when people don't want to hear it anymore. They're not going to put up with it. They're bored with it. They want to hear the juicy stuff that allows them to keep living the lives they want to live without having to bend the knee to God Almighty. That time will come. Perhaps that time is already among us. So Jesus uses this background, their love for tradition, their era, to teach an important lesson about what it means to worship God in the first place and what place does the human heart really play in order to properly worship God. So he says in Isaiah 29, I'm sorry, he says in Matthew, but he's quoting Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. These traditions, unfortunately, and these wrong conclusions basically had hollowed out their hearts. Hollowed out their hearts. The bottom line of this teaching is that if your heart is not in it, you have not truly worshipped God. That's why I opened this morning with this question. Okay, we sang our songs. We put our money in the offering plate. But have we truly worshipped God? You mean it's possible to come into a place of worship? A house that was designed, built specifically to be a place of worship? And to have specific events in our worship service that all point to worship and are obedient acts of worship as written in God's word. And to not even have true worship occur. Is that even possible? It is. It is absolutely possible. As a matter of fact, this is what has happened. In Jesus's day. Because the so-called people of God, they did wrong things, but they also did right things. Now, we know that if you start with the wrong things, you end at the wrong place. Some people don't even try to worship God rightly. They just do their own thing or they have their false gods or they totally pervert it and twist it. It's real obvious. But there are others that that say perfect words during worship services. They recite precise prayers Maybe right out of Scripture or at least built from Scripture. Beautiful, wonderful things. Songs are sung. Prayers are offered. Gestures are given. Perhaps symbolism takes place. All of the right things, money, offerings are made. Everything on the outside looks perfect. And they have not truly worshipped the God that they're supposed to be worshipping because their heart was not in it. Talk about an important. So in other words, actions aren't enough to get the job done. Doing the right actions. Here's what John Piper has to say. Honoring God. And remember, Jesus is saying they honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain 
do they worship me? In other words, it counts not. So Piper says honoring God means recognizing his honor. Feeling the worth of it and ascribing it to him in all the ways appropriate to his character. It's an experience of the heart that is anything but far from God. Now, what is this experience of the heart? What's it like? Well, we've seen already that it is more than action. It's more than kneeling and praying and singing and sitting and reciting scripture and eating the Lord's Supper. But it, all, but it is also more than willing. Genuine worship is never a mere act of willpower. All those activities of worship require the exertion of our will. But they do not become genuine worship by virtue of that. When God says their heart is far from me, he doesn't mean that they don't have the willpower to go through the motions. They do. But their heart is still far away from God. The reason is that the drawing near of the heart to God means the coming alive of our feelings for God. Worship is not worship is an affair of the whole heart. It is an affair of the feelings and of the emotions. Now, that is sobering. It is sobering to me to think that I can't get away with coming here or in a personal devotion and say, you know, your word says I must have a devotion. I must devote myself to you. I must study your word. And so here I am. I have my Bible open. My eyes looked at them. My lips spoke them. And I spent X minutes and I closed it. And I even said my prayer afterwards. That means I just worshiped you, right? Or I came to church and I sang the songs that were on the overhead and they were good. I put my money in the plate. I greeted my fellow saints. I just worshiped you, right? According to this, the actions are not enough. The actions are the right actions. They're good. But that does not necessitate that true worship has taken place. If our heart is not in it, is it possible for us to come and go through the motions and our heart not be in it? Yeah. They did it. It's possible today. So what would it look like then for the actions to be connected to the right kind of heart? What should we be feeling then? What should be going around and stirring up in our hearts when we worship him? Well, we know because we've been studying the Psalms. And when you read the Psalms that are, that are God's tunes, you get to see what are in the saints' hearts as they come before God. What kind of things are going on in there that are considered true worship? Well, first of all, you have contrition. The saints that have come before God, and I'm just and, and these are not an exhaustive list, but one thing is sorrow over sin. Their heart feels it when they read about how holy God is and how sin grieves God, and they feel it in the heart, I have grieved you. This week, I've grieved you from since last Sunday with my life. I have not given you my whole whole heart and I'm broken over it. There's also a sense of feeling of awe and respect and adoration just to be in the presence of God. Feelings of gratitude. Are you grateful to be here this morning? 
Are you grateful for the promise of God that he is among? He inhabits the praises of his people. So there's this this feeling of gratitude. There's the feeling of an experience of hope that, yeah, things just really seem to be going wrong in this world. But God is on the throne. My hope is in God. It's not in chariots. It's not in horses. It's in God. It's not in my possessions or my new car or my bank account. It's in God. It's not in politicians. It's in God. My hope is in God. It's these kind of feelings where we have sunk the talons of our heart into God's holy word and God's character. And joy, the joy of the Lord. We should, we should feel and experience the joy of God because we are in his presence. And God is a joyful God, a pleasant God, a good friend. A loving, holy comforter. So these are the proper feelings and and there are more besides that. If our heart is not in it, we have not truly worshipped God. And that's what it looks like. And it requires the will. Who do we talk to the most in this world? Ourselves. You're talking to yourself right now. You're hearing me and you're talking to yourself at the same time. I do it. I'm talking to myself too while I'm talking to you. We talk to ourselves all the time. We need to talk to ourselves. We need to talk to our souls. The psalmists talk to their souls. Why are you so depressed? What's wrong with you, man? Look at God. What's going on here? You're looking at the wrong thing. You're camping in the wrong camp. We need to constantly talk to ourselves. Revive ourselves. To the things of God, our affections to the things of God. That's how we properly worship God. So we need the the, the right content, but also the right heart, the right emotions. More than physical action. It's a specific, specific affection. Jesus isn't finished. So he goes on to teach about true worship and holiness. And he says... It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. In other words, if you're going to really worship God, there has to be a time where you take your eyes off the external things about this ceremony or this ritual, this washing, as good as they are and right as they are, or how beautiful the offering plate is that came around, you know, these different things or what instruments are being played. There comes a time where you have to get your eyes off of that and put them on your heart. And if you don't ever put the eyes, your own eyes on your own heart and not other people's, but your own heart, you've not truly worshiped God. Why do we have to do this? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, verse 19, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. There's just some of the Ten Commandments right there. These are what defile the person. But to eat with the unwashed hands does not defile. If we have a time where we consider, boy, that was just a terrible time of worship Sunday. It's not going to be, be because somebody hit a wrong note during a worship song. That doesn't bother God as much as it may bother us. What bothers God is what are we doing with the filth that's in our hearts? What are we doing about that? Are we seeing that in light of God's word? Because it's so easy for us to not look at ourselves and to look at everybody else and every other thing. I can't worship God with this color paint for crying out loud. 
with this old podium that has never been changed as long as we've been in here. How am I supposed to preach from this? And I wonder if my sermons just hit the ground. I can look. We can think of a lot of things or a drab congregation. We can think of a lot of excuses and put the, the, the emphasis on the externals over here. But if I don't look at my own heart and look at God's standard. I haven't truly worshipped God. So there are things that are helpful to have in a worship service, but not necessary. Beautiful, maybe even more beautiful. Maybe a louder sound system or a clearer sound system. Wonderful, great things to have. But does not necessitate a greater act of worship. And every external thing that you can think of, it will never make up for a heart that is not right with God. For a heart. We can sing, we, we can turn the music up louder. It doesn't affect our hearts. Sing the greatest songs out there. We could, we could have a beautiful display of symbolic and ritual Christian symbols to draw, dim the lights, draw ourselves right. Doesn't mean it's going to do a thing for our hearts. Those things in and of themselves are not wrong by any means. And they have an important place. But this is where true worship starts and ends. And by the way, praise songs are not the end. Praise songs are to worship itself as the end product. These things are just to help us worship God as he deserves. So there are things that when it gets right down to it, yeah, don't really matter. But the heart absolutely matters. So the, the whole idea, of course, is Jesus is saying, look, all this stuff is in your heart. You got to deal with your heart. It needs to be pure before you come before God. And what the Pharisees are supposed to do is say, well, wait a minute. How am I supposed to do that? I'm full of sin. Now, they didn't. They said, well, actually, I am uh, I am. Obeying all these commandments and they came to the wrong conclusion. But what we're supposed to do is say, but God, I can't I can't come before you with a, with a pure heart. And that's where the gospel comes and the forgiveness of God comes and said, no, you can't. But there's the good news is there's a gift, there's a remedy, there's a cordial for that sin that you can't stop on your own. And it's called forgiveness and it's called substitutionary atonement, where Christ dies for our sin and walks out of the tomb for our life. And we put our faith in that and turn our affection. And our life is just ongoing gratitude for what Christ has accomplished for us. True worship, our hearts. Clean hands. Nice thing to have. I appreciate it. Hospitals, they have the um, the uh, sanitizers. I use them. I don't want to give anybody my stuff and I don't want to get their stuff. It's a good thing. But when it comes to worshiping God, it's, that, that's just like external stuff. You've got to let it seep on down into our hearts. Because it's not what goes into the mouth, verse 11, that defiles a person. It's what comes out. In other words, the, the moral filth is here. And we can put all the emphasis out here and never really touch it. Just as an, an illustration, 
something that I see in, in our day and time is there's a big emphasis now on environment, clean environment. And of course, there is abuse that goes on and we're can't say that we have been the best stewards of our environment, but there's a there's a, a growing thrust of the importance of a clean environment and taking action to clean up our environment and not just a, a thrust, but it's becoming uh, an ethical, moral issue, whether you're a Christian or not. It's not actually it's not mainly from Christian camps. It's, it's like becoming in our cultural or it's not culturally acceptable to um, for the for the uh, emissions, the gases and so forth and the pollutants that we put in the air and put in the seas and put in the ground and all this. There's just it's becoming uh, absolutely unacceptable for us to continue to pollute the earth. So there's a, a good emphasis or strong emphasis. And basically you are uh, in many people's eyes a sinner if you do certain things that pollute the earth, if you still do them, if you're not green. So it's, it's very important. And environmentalism is important. We are to, or at least to, we are stewards of God's world and earth. He put us there. We're the rulers and we can't blame anybody but ourselves in how we take care of. But it's interesting, the emphasis and how important certain things can become. That really, in the big scheme of things, aren't that important. So what we can do is we can smoke screen things out here that we should clean up and ignore the issues of the heart. So, in other words, it's an absolute sin to put a plastic straw. In a trash can or somewhere where it might wind up in the sea or the ocean, terrible thing to do. While over the weekend, dozens of people have been shot and killed, murdered. And that's not appropriately addressed. See, the, the emphasis can be a smokestream to clean up everything out here that's wrong with the world. This is what's wrong with the world when the Bible says this is what's wrong with the world. And if you want to smell and take in the, the, the cleanest, freshest air and put your hands in the purest dirt there ever was... Then you got to go to heaven to do that because God cares about the earth, too. But this earth isn't going to last. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And not only will we have the purest hearts you've ever experienced, we will have the purest earth you will ever experience. The freshest air that you will ever experience. There's no dirt or moral filth or physical filth of any kind. That's God's plan for all things. But I just bring that up because the. The external things can be a smoke screen to divert us from our own hearts. And I'm not and I'm not saying this so that now we judge environmentalists because that would be wrong. I'm saying this so that we would realize the best thing that we can do for this world, the absolute best thing that we can do for this world is to bring people the gospel that they might bow the knee and worship God. Because when you have people that know God and worship God, that's as good as life gets in this season of redemption. It's not over. The king hadn't fully conquered yet. We're in the process of it. That's the best thing. When people all around the globe are worshiping God, it will affect their view of the world and the environment by the way. So we want to look at our hearts. And I think I pretty much ran out of time. So these last two, uh, these last two points, 
I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Actually, I'm going to squeeze them in here um, real quick by summarizing. The faith of a Canaanite won't even take time to read it. The faith of a Canaanite woman, 21 through 28. Many of you know the story. Now, what's going on in this picture? Jesus is ministering. He's been ministering. He's been healing people. This Canaanite woman comes to him and she is absolutely desperate. Now, what in the world is a Canaanite woman doing on Jerusalem turf, on Jewish turf? Because you know the history between the Jews and the Canaanites, right? They are big time enemies. These are the same Canaanite people that back in the day, God said, get them out by the sword. Take them to the sword. So this is a big rivalry enemy thing. It's, it's a racial thing going on. I mean, it's deep. They do not like each other. So what is this Canaanite woman doing on Jewish turf? She's not. Jesus is in Gentile turf right now. He's, menace, he's ministering in Gentile turf. So in Gentile turf, she comes to him and she's a mother. And you know a mother's heart. Her daughter is suffering because of demon possession. And so she basically comes to Jesus. She, she knows that Jesus heals. That's what she's heard. Maybe she's seen it. That's her hope for her daughter. And she comes asking for mercy. Now, there's tension in the scene. You know, it's racial tension. It's ethical, ethnic tension. Because they don't, most Jews don't want anything to do with Canaanites. She's crying out to Jesus. The disciples are like, ah, get rid of this woman. Jesus, tell her to go away. And Jesus makes some kind of comment about, I'm, I'm really just here to feed the people of Israel. And I can just see the disciples high-fiving each other. Yes, he's going to get rid of her. But she persists. And she says something to the effect of, even the dogs, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. Now, what I like about that scene is here she is. She's not coming with this attitude that she deserves anything. She just knows, look, I've got nothing. I don't deserve anything. I, I recognize my my position and how you look at me as a Canaanite, as a dog, as a nobody. I, I accept that. I make no claims. I just basically come asking for your mercy. I'm only here not because of what I have to offer you. I'm here because of what I hear about you. You give, you heal. And Jesus heals her, heals the daughter. And he says, you have great faith. Jesus says that two times in the book of Matthew. And guess to whom they are addressed both times? Gentiles. And then in this last section about the feeding of the 4,000, there's something going on here. He's already done this. What's going on? Well, now it's in Gentile territory. And he's healing people just like he did with the Jews in the other verses. The lame, the mute. The blind, he's healing them. And what are they doing in verse 31? They glorified the God of Israel. And I'll close with that. He's in Gentile territory. So this is business as usual, but not business as usual. Because what has just happened is the harvest that Jesus was talking about in the parables is taking place, not just with the Jews. It's taking place with the Gentiles. The kingdom of God has just opened up. The gates have just opened wider. Because now you have not, you have Gentiles praising the God of Israel. That's why Matthew put it like that. Not just any God, but the God of Israel. You have the God of Israel ministering 
to the Gentiles. And so you see that it's not the, the ministry of Christ in the kingdom. Just Israel isn't the end. It's just the beginning. This location is just the beginning. And it's going to go out from there. It's the beginning of the great commission that Jesus will give before he ascended to the father. They glorified the God of Israel. So the challenge is for us to ignite our affections and our heart and examine ourselves. It's our responsibility to love God, to experience God, to give him our hearts. What do we need to do this week to ensure that that's taking place? True worship. And what do we do that need to need to do this week to assure that others have the opportunity to hear the good news and to become worshipers of Lord God Almighty. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.